1: My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all over the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And do I have a treat for you this week? We have Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll with us from Utah. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. I met Jeff at a conference last summer where we were both speaking called Helping Parents Heal. And, uh, once I read Jeff's bio, you'll know a little bit about why I asked him to come on, but he's an unconventional, uh, psychic, I would say, or somebody that can communicate with spirit and, you know, I am too. So I, I'm always intrigued to hear people's stories about that. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jeff, and then I've got lots of questions for you, sir. So let me, uh. Let me get get, uh, you here on on my bio, what I've got for you. Jeff O'Driscoll, MD, practiced emergency medicine in a level one trauma center for 25 years and served as department chair for eight. He received his training at the University of Utah School of Medicine and completed his residency in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's board certified in internal medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. That's a big deal to those of you that aren't in the industry and don't know. That's a a very big deal. Dr. O'Driscoll recently stepped away from practicing medicine to pursue consulting and to write. His recent books include a novel, Who Buried Achilles?, a series of children's books about Muck the Duck and friends, and his award-winning memoir, Not Yet?, focusing on his spiritual encounters in the emergency department. This is terrific, you guys. Not yet. Get it. You want to read it. It's just terrific. Can't say enough good things about it, and we'll talk about it as we go through uh, our chat today. You say you exist to help souls heal.
2: What does that mean? Interestingly enough, I never thought of myself as a healer in the emergency department, even though I helped people that were had the most severe injuries and the most critical illnesses flown in from around the state and from neighboring states. That thought never occurred to me. But when I stopped seeing patients, I finally started to share some of the experiences I had in the emergency department that I'd never talked about for 25 years. Uh, things like seeing souls leave their bodies when they died. And they would communicate with me before they left this realm wherever they went and when I started to talk about this with a friend of mine after I stopped seeing patients he said I think you're a healer (laughs) and I said no 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 I'm not that um he said yeah I think you're a healer and I think you should ask for permission to use the word which I thought was a really strange thing for him to say but uh I came home, I changed my clothes, I went out for a run, because a lot of times I get good communication when I'm out running. And while I was running, I asked the question, is it okay to call myself a healer? And I had this profound experience. Um, I felt the presence of a, a divine presence, and I heard the words, of course, I made you a healer. And I got this download in that instant of this understanding oh, the universe is not diminished if I'm a good healer. There's there's not a jealousy or an insecurity there. If I'm a really good healer, it doesn't diminish source or spirit or whatever word you want to use to talk about uh, the light or whatever. And I came home that day and put healer on my website and on my business card. So um, I was looking at my old business card, and it said artist, author, physician, and I just had this feeling, no, it's, that's, those are just fractions. Those are just facets of what you are. And I asked, what am I? And I got that download. You exist to help souls heal. So now I, I'm in a new chapter of my life. I, I try and help people heal their soul. I try to help people connect with their most authentic self and live a, a higher, more spirit driven, spirit guided life.
1: Well, I think I want to say to you, Jeff, duh, you're an ER physician for heaven's sake. Of course, you're a healer. You're keeping people alive. You're helping people stay alive. You're helping people heal their wounds and their injuries. And now you're just a more well-rounded healer as far as I'm concerned with that. Uh, and, And no coincidence, all that experience in the ER led you to where you are now because you build on that. I'm an inventor of surgical devices sold throughout the world. I was in the hospital supply industry for 30 years. I know that that path has led me to be a better healer to help people when they have medical stuff going on. And none of us, and you can attest to this, none of us heal anybody else. When you stitched up a laceration, you didn't make the patient's skin grow back. They made their own skin grow back. You were facilitating them healing themselves. And that's how I think of all healers that we're here as conduits of spirit to help people on their journey of healing themselves. Would you agree with that?
2: I do agree with that. Um, when you place sutures in a wound, you're merely approximating the edges of the wound to help them heal quicker. It would heal without any stitches, but you help you you manage the scar and you facilitate the healing. And uh I agree. That's what I put in a different way for a different a different aspect of our of who we are. I agree.
1: You also say for 25 years, you help people heal their bodies, and now you help them heal their souls. You just mentioned that. So how different and or similar are the two practices?
2: Um, There's a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. And I like what you pointed out about how when you help people physically as a physician, um, you're... You're helping them facilitate their own healing. And I do that with people now when I meet with clients. I have clients around the world now that uh, I work with. And invariably, as we visit, they verbalize the answer to the question they came to me with. Uh, My mentoring uh, functions on the premise that my clients already have their answers. Sometimes they just need a little bit of help finding those answers. And so what I do is I listen and I feel and I reflect their words until they have their aha moment. And then they go, oh, I get it now. And then I send them on their way. About 30 years ago, I had this profound experience with somebody that was very spiritual. And they asked if they could give me a blessing. And I said, oh, of course. They laid their hands on me and gave me this blessing. And part of the blessing, they said, Teach people truth in such a way as to help them realize they've always known it. And uh, that's the premise I I work from when I work with clients is uh, I help them find the answers that they already have.
1: When you validate what they're thinking, which I think is a huge part of the equation is people want validation that that they're thinking clearly and that they're really. Coming from a place, especially when they're getting communication from spirit getting led in a certain direction, and when you can validate and agree you agree with what they're getting. i I think that's kind of the missing link for a lot of people just to watch them soar from there,
2: yeah, to, to give your readers a little bit of context or background so they know why I'm saying these strange things,. Um, uh, as I said earlier, in the emergency department, sometimes when people would die, I would see their souls leave their bodies and they'd communicate with me. And it wasn't until I started to share these experiences that people would ask me, well, when did this start for you? How did this happen? Up until then, that question had never occurred to me. But with a lot of uh, self introspection, I concluded that it started when I was a kid, just uh about the time of my 12th birthday when my older brother died in a farm accident. He tipped a tractor over. And it wasn't long after that that I started getting messages. Uh, Sometimes I'd hear a voice. Sometimes I'd just have a knowing. And over time, those messages became more clear. And sometimes I would see the messenger. Sometimes it was my brother. Sometimes it was somebody else. And sometimes I didn't know who it was. So by the time I got to the emergency department, as profound as my experiences there were with seeing souls outside their physical form, it wasn't new for me. It felt normal and natural because it had been a gradual progression over a period of decades.
1: Do you believe that everybody has the ability and it's just a matter of developing and enhancing it?
2: I think everybody has abilities i think everybody if you want to call them gifts i think everybody have has gifts uh, i don't think everybody's gifts are the same or that they're experienced to the same degree so i'm not suggesting that everybody sees or hears or experiences things like that but virtually everybody that i know does and it's very often that clients will come to me and they'll feel that they've never had a spiritual experience And as we visit, they start to verbalize things and I'll say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let's talk about that for a second. And they kind of go, oh, yeah, I guess that was significant.
1: Yeah, that's been my experience is that we all come in with the ability and then little children are very good and your children's books, you know, uh, address that, I think. But the it's been my experience that little children are very good at being able to see and communicate with spirits and also remember past lives because they'll remember details that we can corroborate with with documents online, sometimes historic from eons ago. And the mom is saying to me, my child's three. He can't even read yet. How does he know that he was part of this battalion in the civil war in Virginia in this battle and who his commanding officer was and all that jazz? And And it's correct when they do some research on it. I also believe that everybody can learn to develop and enhance the abilities that we all come in with. And that's what I teach. I learned how to do all of this stuff on on purpose. I was led to learn how to do this. And I teach people all over the world how to do it now. I use the analogy, Jeff, of everybody can throw a ball, but it doesn't mean you're going to be Tom Brady playing in the NFL. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of use.
2: It does take a lot of practice, and I often liken it uh, to a physical gift as well. Like you said, um, I tell people you can have a, a musical gift and be incredibly talented, but you still have to practice forty thousand hours to master your your gift and 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 play at Carnegie Hall. And people too often function from the miss miss. Uh, understanding that spiritual gifts come upon us whole cloth and perfected and ready to be exercised without any effort on our part. And so like yourself, I teach clients all over the world skills and and exercises and tools that they can use to develop their own gifts in a way that they can trust and uh, be guided by them more fully. Right.
1: Did you grow up in a spiritual family? Did you have other people that could see dead people?
2: Um, not to my knowledge. My mother was a profoundly spiritual person, um, but uh, she never talked about it. and in fact, it was twenty years after my brother passed. he came to me one day. and when I say he came to me, I mean, uh, I saw him, and he had a form that was like to that was similar to a physical form. Um, even though he wasn't in a physical body. And uh, he spoke to me and he said, there's things our mother's never told you about my death. You need to go talk to her, which kind of got my attention. And uh, I, I went and I sat down with my mother on a beautiful sunny day. We just, the two of us in the house. And that was the first time she told me, I always knew where you were in the house before Stan died because I could hear you singing, she said. When your brother died, you stopped singing. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I realized that my brother's death had really impacted me in a deep psychological way. And that knowledge really started me down a healing path of uh, taking down that wall I built around my heart because I was never going to be hurt that way again. I was never going to care about anything enough to be hurt when it was taken from me like I was when my brother died. And I, I learned gradually that that wall that I built to protect myself was also preventing me from experiencing love, from giving or receiving it in its fullness. And so I started the process of taking that wall down.
1: I think it's interesting that you chose emergency medicine with that wall up there. Okay. I'm going to help these people. I'm going to save the ones I can, but the ones I can't, I'm not going to be, you know, emotionally invested in them. I'm just going to do my job and and do what I need to, to help them. And you don't see them after they leave the E.D., Right, you they go up to the floor, they go to surgery or whatever. You're not the doctor that's going making rounds every morning, so no coincidence there, Jeff. I think that that plays a big part in where you were led to to go to be the first part of your healing journey, to be a healer on the first part of your healing journey.
2: Yes, Uh, I mean those weren't intentional decisions, but in retrospect, I can see them when I within a year of, of leaving the emergency department, I'd written my book, it was published, and uh, uh, people were talking with me about it a lot. And I was scheduled to go to my first formal speaking engagement to talk about on this topic. I mean, I've spoken to large groups, uh, medical groups about various things, but this was going to be a different kind of a talk, right? So I'm in the airport, And this young couple come and sit next to me in the lounge and start asking the usual airport questions: Where are you going? What are you doing? And when they got to the place where the woman said, "Well, what are you going to be speaking?" She looked at me with this really sincere look and said, "My grandfather just died, and he's he's come to me a couple of times." And my first thought, ironically, was, "Why would a perfect stranger share something so intimate?" Uh, Which was odd, considering where I was going and what I was going to be doing. Uh, But then I realized that I was a safe place and she knew that she could trust me and I wouldn't, I I would believe her. Um, She took one of my books and went and caught her plane. I got on my plane and in the air on the way to Boston, um, a voice spoke to me. I had seen in my estimation over 60,000 patients by then in my life. And the voice said, you will help more people with this book than you helped as a physician in the emergency department. And it just gave me a whole new view of the next chapter of my life.
1: Well, and and to have the courage to come out of the closet with it, too. And and I know that that's no insignificant feat because I had to do it myself. I thought, oh, my God, everybody's going to think I'm nuts." And and I had businesses and companies and employees and stuff. And I thought, oh my heavens, here we go. And and you had to do the same thing. And it, and it does take guts, and it does take courage, and it does take accepting where you're being led.
2: It, it does. It takes some effort, and and uh, you grow into it gradually. Sometimes, I mean, you you can make a big leap, like going and speaking to a group of people, but. Even looking back, there were a lot of things I didn't share in that first uh, episode, that first speaking engagement, because I wasn't ready to share them, the things that I've shared since. Um, One of my most noted experiences in my book had to do with a man named Jeff Olson, and I'm not disclosing anything inappropriate because he talks publicly about this. So uh, he was involved in a horrible car crash. And the, the crash took the life of his wife of 10 years, Tamara, and his 14-month-old son, Griffin. His seven-year-old son survived with almost with very little injury, and Jeff was just horribly injured. He ended up losing his leg, and he, he had a bunch of chest trauma and abdominal trauma and things. No head trauma, though. and And he was flown to my emergency department. And when I went into the trauma room, he was unconscious on the gurney and he had a team of people taking care of him. I was not his doctor. I was not involved in his medical care. And standing above him in the air was his deceased wife, Tamara, who had just died in the accident. And she had this brilliant, glorious appearance. And she filled me with light in the process. The whole room got quiet for me. Everybody else was scurrying around doing their jobs. But for me, it was just quiet. And it was just her and me. And she thanked me for the for the efforts that everybody was making to save her life. I walked over and I looked down at Jeff on the gurney. I felt the pulse in his injured leg. And I either thought it or said out loud, oh, he's going to lose the leg, which proved to be true a few days later. And as I looked down at Jeff, I could still see Tamara standing in the air behind me because I could see in all directions at the same time. So Jeff and I uh, became fast friends. That was 25 years ago. A month later, after he'd had several surgeries and an amputation of his leg, I spoke with him in his hospital room. It was the first time we spoke. And when he learned about the experience I'd had with his wife, um, he just wept. And he broke down and told me about the out-of-body experience he had at the scene of the accident he'd left his body and met his wife in the in a beautiful light above the car and uh, she told him you have to go back and raise our other son so the reason i share that is because we have these experiences that accumulate over time and we don't always recognize the impact and significance of them immediately but it grows on us over time. And when we start to share, a lot of it uh, becomes more clear and it helps us as well as helping the people that we're sharing it with. And and I realized you know, some experiences are given to me for me, but a lot of them are given to me to share. They're not given for me to keep to myself. And it took me a while to come to that.
1: What led you to go visit Jeff? Because that's not the norm. I can't imagine that all the patients that you saw in the emergency department, you didn't go visit them up on the floor, did you? What no. What led you specifically about him? Because you saw his wife's spirit in the ER. I didn't.
2: I didn't expect to see him ever again when I left the emergency department. I had not planned that. But there was one nurse in the department that knew I had these experiences. She pried them out of me because she had her own experiences that she shared with me. And she got me talking privately. And uh, sh- so she knew I had these experiences. And she, she, she drugged me into the trauma room that night. She said, you have to come. She'd already been in there. I said, why? And she said, his wife, she's there. And then I realized what she was talking about. And so we had the experience together. And about a month later, this same nurse came to me. And she said, we have to go tell Jeff what happened, Jeff Olson. And uh, I said, no, we don't. <laughs> I, said, I said, if you want to go tell a perfect stranger about your profound spiritual experience, be my guest. But I don't feel any obligation whatsoever. But she was a good nurse and persistent as, as, and persuasive as good nurses are. And she dragged me kicking and screaming to his hospital room and proceeded to tell him about the experience we'd had. So that's how I ended up in his hospital room.
1: And that was when the block around your heart shattered, wasn't it?
2: Well, that was part of it. Yes, that was a big contributor. In fact, you would think that the experiences that I had and that he had that we shared that day would would have been the most uh, significant event that day. But for me, the longer I was in his hospital room, the more I realized I wasn't there just to share my experience. I was there to connect us to the next decades of our lives and the things we would do together in the future. And I had that clear understanding when I left his room that day. And now now we we speak together often. We're good friends. And uh, uh, I see the value in the connection. Here in
1: the Deep South, they would say you were being led. I was being led. You were being led to do that. Well, back to your... Emergency room Dr. Ring did you ever do you were you ever cognizant of receiving messages in your head about how to treat a patient and it just didn't make sense to you but you followed that what we would call gut instinct and it proved to be correct
2: Yes uh, one of the most notable examples was I had a gentleman who was on a motorcycle Uh, A car stopped in front of him downtown, and he uh, hit his brakes and laid his bike down and kind of slid across the road and bumped into the curb at low speed. He was wearing full protective gear, including a helmet, and he protested with the EMTs. He didn't want to go to the ER, but they dutifully strapped him to a board and and him off to the emergency department. And he just wanted to get up and go home. And he had no evidence of injury. There's there's well-established criteria in the literature about how you assess somebody to see if they need x-rays or CT scan of their head or neck in such a circumstance. And he didn't meet any criteria to require imaging. And I was about to let him get up and go home. And I just had this strong feeling. And i shared shared with, with the patient. I told him, I said, I think we should scan your head. there's not a good reason for it. The medical criteria don't say that you need it, but I feel like we should do it. And he laughed at me and he said, okay, doc, just go ahead and get your unnecessary test. And uh, so I ordered the scan. Uh, Normally the results of a CT scan would come back to me in, I don't know, 30, 40 uh, minutes or an hour. I'd look them up on a computer and and look at the images. On this occasion, 15 minutes after I sent him to the scanner, the radiologist called me on the phone with an urgent tone in his voice and said that he was accumulating an epidural hematoma so rapidly the radiologist could see the blood swirling on the scan. I worked in a level one trauma center. All I had to do was pick up a phone and call the neurosurgeon. And uh, 15 or 20 minutes later, that gentleman was up in the OR getting uh, a burr hole. If I'd have let him get up and walk out of the ER, he would have died that night. Okay. So
1: translate that into English. What's a burr hole? What's the hematoma? Yeah.
2: So what that means is that he had bumped his head hard enough to damage a blood vessel in his in his cranium and the blood was collecting under pressure because it's an arterial uh, bleed and it's displacing the brain as the size of the hematoma or the collection of blood gets bigger and bigger. And when I went back to check on him after talking with the radiologist, he was already getting sleepy. Um, and so a burr hole, they simply make an incision. They draw back your scalp and make a little hole in your skull and drain out that blood. Your brain returns to its normal shape. And uh, he was probably back on his motorcycle a couple of weeks later. It's a relatively minor procedure, as, as, as dramatic as it sounds, but it's a life-saving procedure.
1: Exactly. He could have died had you not done that. Well done, doctor. Good job on that. I'm sure you have lots of other examples of that. You mentioned earlier that you've seen patient spirits leave their bodies. Can you describe that for us, please? Yeah, I'll try. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So, if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth bedding. I love them and so will you. You mentioned earlier that you've seen patient spirits leave their bodies. Can you describe that for us, please?
2: Yeah, I'll try. I I went into work one day. I was logging onto the computer, and I became aware of this presence over my shoulder. And I'd had enough experiences by then. Intuitively, I knew who it was. It was the soul or the spirit, the, the consciousness of the woman around the corner in the resuscitation bay who was unconscious and intubated, and they were trying to resuscitate her. There was a physician and a whole team in there. She was intubated. They were doing chest compressions. And she was standing over my shoulder asking me for help. So I stopped what I was doing. I walked around the corner into the room. Nobody paid any attention to me whatsoever because I was in scrubs. I was in a coat. I was probably the department chair at the time. And it wasn't uncommon to have another physician in a room when something like that's going on. So everybody kept doing their jobs. The doctor was running the code. I just nonchalantly, inconspicuously walked over and rested my hand on the woman's leg because I'd learned that touch is so important in these circumstances. And as I touched her, she asked me if she could leave. And I thought, why would you ask me? Why would you think I have that answer? But. As she communicated it, and mind you, she's communicating telepathically because she's unconscious. She's intubated and having chest compressions. As I wondered about her question, the words came to me from some divine place and I communicated silently back to her. If you think it's the right time to go and you think that's what you should do, I think it's probably all right for you to go. And as I said that, the moment I said it, she just rose up out of her body. And stood in the air above the gurney. And she still had what seemed like a physical form, but it was a perfect physical form that was uh, half the age of the body she'd just come out of. It was as if it was the prime of her existence as, as she'd returned to. And she was filled with this brilliant love and gratitude, and she thanked me profusely for what I'd done, which I thought was nothing, and then she left. And when I turned and left the room as I was leaving and I heard the physician in charge pronounce her time of death in military time, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I know. I saw her leave. And I walked out and logged onto my computer, and that's how my day started.
1: When her image was above the gurney, did she look like a hologram? Did she look like an actual body? What did that, how did that appear to you?
2: Yeah, that's a difficult one as well, because She appeared to have substance. um, And it wasn't as if I could see through her, but I could see what was beyond her. Um, You know, we have so many limits in our physical world. You can see this or you can see that, but you can't see both at the same time. But when I have these experiences, I can see both at the same time. When I saw Tamara, I could see in all directions at the same time. I could see what was beyond her, even though I could perceive that she was of some kind of substance, even though she wasn't in her physical body. People ask me, well, how do you see this? Do you see it with your physical eyes? And the only way I can explain it is, as a physician, sight works when electromagnetic waves travel through our lens and cornea and get focused on the retina. And the rods and cones convert those waves into electrical signals that travel down our optic nerves to the occipital cortex, And the occipital cortex somehow converts them into an image. That's how we think of sight. But when I see things like spirits or souls, it's as if all of those physiologic processes are bypassed. And I just get the pure, unadulterated image uh, in a more powerful, more perfect way. It feels like I'm seeing it with my eyes, but everybody else in the room would see it, too, if that were the case. So that's how I think of it. Are your eyes open or closed? Usually open. Mm -hmm. Usually my experiences are with my eyes wide open in the middle of the day when I'm wide awake, often when I'm up doing something else. But I will add this. Most of my experiences like the two I've shared, Jeff Olson and this other one, there was another physician in the room responsible for the patient's care. They were doing all the medical stuff and I had no concern about their medical care. I think that when we're so distracted by our professional, scientific, physical demands that we sometimes don't have spiritual experiences because we're too uh, distracted. I think if I had been resuscitating Jeff Olson, if I'd have been putting in a chest tube or intubating him and and doing all the medical things, I'm not sure I would have seen his wife, but I didn't have any of those responsibilities.
1: I agree. You're the first person who's ever verbalize that I've heard say I can see through them and I can see everything around them even beyond them. I find that I do the same thing, but I never thought about it. It's just like, okay, yeah, well, they're there. I never, I never dissected it down to that minute of an explanation, but it's brilliant and it's very spot on. I completely agree with you and I experience the same thing.
2: Well, like you, when I have these experiences, they're so straightforward. They seem so natural, so innate that it just flows. And you never think about those details until somebody starts quizzing you on them. And then you have to start thinking, backing up and going, no, wait, how do I put this in words that somebody can can grasp because it's so ineffable? experience itself but it seems so natural you don't you don't notice the details sometimes because it's just something that's happening but after i first started to share my experiences um, and i wrote my book i got a call from raymond moody and i have never met him before never talked with him and he told me he said jeff I've been an objective, skeptical researcher for 40 years. As you know, he's a physician who uh, authored a book uh, that was translated into more than a dozen languages, sold over 12 million copies, I think. And uh, he said, I I was always skeptical about whether there was a life after death, despite all his research. And he said, after I read your experience and Jeff Olson's and, and heard you guys speak, I relinquished my skepticism. I now truly believe that there is life after death. Wow, he's
1: and he's a big he's a champion skeptic, right? And has all that alphabet soup after his name in the form of degrees. To yeah, to, uh...
2: yeah, he he already had a PhD when he went to medical school. He actually heard George Ritchie talk. Uh, George Ritchie uh, was in the, a military hospital and and was pronounced dead for by some accounts as much as nine minutes. Um, before he uh came back. And uh Raymond Moody heard George Ritchie speak after George Ritchie had gone to medical school and become a psychiatrist. And it was that that prompted Ray Raymond Moody's fascination with near-death experiences. And he went to medical school after he'd had after he'd already got a PhD and uh and wrote his book is Life After Life, I think is the title of it. And uh Yeah. He's a great guy. It was, it was really flattering for to hear him say that.
1: I bet. When I scan somebody real time, who's in, usually in surgery is when I do it sometimes in the emergency department too, but more, more times in surgery, I see deceased loved ones, spirits in the room. They're usually at the foot of the OR table. They're in a kind of an amphitheater position. (laughs) They're, they're rows of U-shaped You know, loved ones that are there. Yeah, they had to
2: get there early to get a good seat. I guess.
1: And I see the person's guardian angel over the head of anesthesia. And I see surgeon spirits that are advising whoever's operating, whoever the surgeon is there. And, And in the emergency room, I don't see that big of a configuration. And when I was preparing to talk to you today, I thought, why is that? And and I I see that what I call the 12 phases of transition, I see that set up, but when people are in the emergency department, I don't see as many spirits in there as I do in the OR. And the only thing I can equate that to, Jeff, and I I love your input on this is when somebody's having surgery, oftentimes there's a tremendous amount of prayer being said for them. And people know that they're going to have surgery unless it's an emergency situation. And and even then, they get (laughs) the prayer chains going and all of that. And there's definitely a correlation in my experience of scanning tens of thousands of people over the years where the more prayer being said for somebody, the more spirits are in the operating room. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I think that's entirely plausible. I think the circumstance and the people involved and uh, the 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 nature of what's going on impacts that. As does the sensitivity of the person that's observing. I mean, you were seeing all these souls in the emergency department; others weren't seeing them. So, so it's a multifactorial thing. Um, this is a little bit off topic, but I'll share with you one experience I had. This is not medical per se, but it's when I encountered more than one or multiple beings. I, was, I, I went to Manila in the Philippines to visit a friend. And I visited the uh, war memorial and cemetery there in Manila that commemorates 50, 53,000 souls are commemorated at that cemetery, military. The Battle of Leyte Gulf was the largest naval engagement in the history of the world. So I went out to the island of Corregidor, um, which is uh, a prominent military stronghold. And I up at the top of there, there's this war memorial. It's called the War Memorial of the Pacific. And I was walking out to the war memorial when I was overcome with the presence of these souls. Literally, I felt the presence of tens of thousands of souls. And the understanding that came to me in that instant was it was the souls of those who had given their lives in that part of the world for the cause of freedom. And I was so overcome, I just wept. And I asked, I said, who are you? And they said together, we are many. And I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, remember. Hmm. That was all they asked was that they be remembered and that their efforts and their sacrifice be remembered and that we not uh, forget the lessons of the past. So sometimes it's a one on one intimate thing and sometimes it's something so profound. It's just you can't it it, it defies description.
1: Did you actually see tens of thousands of spirits or did you just feel them and, and were able to communicate with them kind of collectively?
2: Well, I saw some things that were profound, but uh, mostly I felt them collectively. And this, this highlights the, the uh, deficiencies of our language, because as you know, when you see a soul or a spirit, uh, an angel, whatever you want to call them, you don't just see them. You experience them. You feel their presence. You have this flow of knowledge and understanding. Sometimes you have this profound empathy and you experience with them what they experienced or are experiencing. Uh, sometimes, uh, you, uh, see into the future or into the past. Sometimes, uh, you, hear a voice. And sometimes that voice just wraps itself around your heart and you experience it and you know it. And so nothing fits with the words that we have to use. Uh, And so the word I often use when I talk about a soul coming to me is I say, I experienced them Mm -hmm. because it embraces so much more.
1: Well, yeah, we, and what I find too, is that Spirits will appear to me in a way that makes sense from our human frame of reference, and especially if I'm working with a family, one of my favorite stories that I talk about it in my book, Angelic Attendance is I was scanning somebody who was having surgery in San Francisco. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. and there were all these spirits in the operating room and they just look dirty. They look like chimney sweeps. Like they were from the scene in the Mary Poppins movie or something. And I told this to the woman who was having surgery. I was talking to her husband on the phone. I said, "They, there's all these spirits in the room, but they just look dirty. They look like, I don't know, chimney sweeps or something. And he said, well, you know, she grew up in West Virginia and dec- and just generations of her family were coal miners. I said, well, no, I didn't know that. I just knew you guys lived in San Francisco. And so I find it fascinating how spirits show up. So they give us a frame of reference that we can either, it can help us identify them or help the people with whom we're working identify them. And it sounds like you're experiencing the same thing. You just knew that those were most likely military people and others that had died in that conflict there in the Philippines
2: yes and and not just people's apparel is 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 appropriate for the message that they bring but sometimes their age as well sometimes I've encountered souls when they were very young uh and I've encountered them when they were very old and you know who it is, you know, their experience, but they're, they come to you in an age that's appropriate for the message that they bear and, and for you to recognize who they are.
1: Well, case in point, whenever I scan somebody who's dying, there are literally thousands and thousands of spirits that come. I call them the welcome to heaven committee and they're dressed in period dress. So we may have Renaissance dressed people. We may have somebody from the sixties, I say with, with uh, hot pants or a mini skirt and go-go boots. And it's hilarious, a lot of it, but it's, it's a way for them to depict to whoever's seeing, whether it be me or somebody else. Okay. Yeah. We got people here for many, many, many lifetimes. Whereas also I think angels, angels appear to me like I was taught. They look big wings, white gown cascading curls coming down on their shoulders somebody that grows up in an indigenous culture in the amazon may see angel energy as a blob of purple just plain energy but it's going to come in in a way that we can have some kind of frame of reference for it so that our human minds can process it as much as we can
2: and, that, I, and i like that you call it a welcoming committee because from my experiences. And see, I didn't just have experiences when people passed. I had experiences when souls were born in the emergency department. Whether the person's coming through the veil to enter this life or passing through the veil to leave it, it's still the same profound spiritual experience. It's as if the this curtain is drawn back in this brilliant, glorious uh light from the other realms spills through and if you're close by you get to experience some of it for a time and if it's open wide enough or held open long enough you might even peer inside you might see somebody you recognize and and so i tell my clients often that um we let grief deprive us of the profound spiritual nature of witnessing somebody's transition into their next life. We're so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, we miss how profound the spiritual experience is. But birth and death are actually the same thing viewed from an opposite perspective. So where are the welcoming committee when people are born. But on the other side of the veil, there's souls weeping and comforting one another as if as if a funeral was being held, saying, you're going to see them again. They'll be fine. They'll be back. We're okay. And reassuring them. And we do exactly the same thing when somebody dies, but we're on the opposite side of that perspective. We're the ones comforting and weeping and promising. You'll see them again. And there's this welcoming committee on the other side of the veil. Birth and death are exactly the same. They just happen to be viewed from the opposite perspective in mortality. Interesting point. I never
1: thought about it that way, but I like it. I find it fascinating that in our Western culture, when somebody dies and we hear about them, I, the one that comes to mind is is the first president, George Bush, Bush 41. And when he died, all the media was saying, oh, he's, he's reunited with his wife, Barbara, who had preceded him in death by a year, year and a half. And you hear that when people who are famous die and they have a partner who's already passed whether it be a spouse or maybe a child and and it's just accepted in normal conversation they'll say oh now that now mom's with dad or grandma's with grandpa and we don't even think about it but then we may hear oh talking to spirits that's not you know that's a sin well no, it's not everybody does it i I find it fascinating how the same thing that we talk about just with different words is and in different contexts is seen so differently.
2: Yes, I'm doing a podcast uh, um, with a Catholic father uh, in a few weeks who has these uh, kind of experiences. And I'm looking forward to asking, well, how do you reconcile that with the teachings of of the church you represent? Because there's, those things don't reconcile for most uh, uh, of the Catholic clergy. Um, well,
1: interestingly enough, Pope Francis came out with a papal bull, which is kind of like a newsletter, and uh, and he said that psychics and healers, he wanted his pastors to welcome them because they were doing the work of the Holy Spirit. And it was published in 2016. I have a copy of it. I send to people when they ask for it. And send me a copy. I will. I'll be happy to. You'll be <laughs> in a coma after about the fourth paragraph. I, I it's because it's written by a canon lawyer, which is a church law lawyer. And I have a buddy who's a, a lawyer who's very involved with the Vatican. I said, God, where do they find these people? Oh, my God, this stuff is so boring to read it. But yeah, I'll send it to you.
2: It's interesting.
1: What's the difference between an NDE and SDE and a near life experience?
2: Well, we like to put labels on things, don't we? And if there's any way possibly to abbreviate that label into a TLA, which stands for three-letter abbreviation, then we do that. I'm accustomed to it because they do it in medicine as well. So a shared or a near-death experience is the common terminology. And in fact, Raymond Moody is credited with being the first person to use that term in the English language. It may have been used in French before that. It has to do with somebody who's had a catastrophic injury or illness and often approaches death or is pronounced clinically dead, and then they are resuscitated and come back to life, which begs an argument from the purists of whether they were actually ever really dead. But we won't go into how long you have to be dead before you can be actually dead. In in the ER, we see people in cold water drownings that are brought back to life after 30 minutes of no cardiac activity. Um, and, and don't have any neurologic uh, brain damage because they were hypothermic at the time. So there's an axiom in emergency medicine. You're not dead until you're warm and dead. You actually can't pronounce somebody dead until they're normal thermic uh, in the ER. So uh, the near-death experience goes back thousands of years in literature and art. But it's really exploded in the last 50 years because of the advent of defibrillation. Uh, People who died of cardiac death uh, almost always died before then. Now they're brought back to life all the time. And 20% of people that are resuscitated from a cardiac arrest describe a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience. That's been well-documented by a cardiologist in the Netherlands who published his peer-reviewed paper in The Lancet. Shared death experience are when somebody usually somebody who's perfectly healthy and wide awake, who's close to the person that's dying, has a spiritual or profound experience uh, when the person passes. So for example, um, people would classify what I had with Jeff Olson as a shared death experience. Uh, I wasn't the one dying, but I had a profound spiritual experience. Some people, and that's usually referred to as a shared death experience or SDE, Some people have other things that don't fit into those categories, which they call spiritually transformative experiences, STE, where they may have an experience in meditation or they may uh, have some other gateway, maybe even uh, uh, plant medicine like ayahuasca or hallucinogens to have their, their spiritually transformative experience or their kundalini awakening, if you will. So there's a lot of abbreviations. And in my opinion, they're all pretty much describing the same thing. It's just who's having the experience and when and how.
1: I think the near-death experiences especially are fascinating because the documentation shows regardless of culture, education level, you know, any of those demographics that they all, I would say for the most part, describe similar experiences.
2: And one of the things that's fascinating about near-death experiences as well, and if people want to read more about this, um, my friend Jim Long is a radiation oncologist, and he has a website, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, Enderf, and he allows people to self-report their near-death experiences on his website. He has over 5,000 now near-death experiences on his website, and you can go there and read any and all of them. Um, So... This is not an uncommon, yeah, near-death experiences uh, across all religious boundaries. And one of the things that's quite interesting about them, in my opinion, is they don't see, the experience the person has doesn't seem to correlate with their human life experience in regards to whether you're a good person or a bad person or religious People that uh, have described themselves as horrible people in this life had these profound, loving, forgiving, embracing experiences uh, in another realm. And some people who supposedly were really good Christian or uh, Jewish or whatever religion, really devout, uh, some of them had unpleasant experiences. Although the unpleasant experience is quite uncommon, it's depending on what you read uh less than 10% and most sources say about 5%.
1: Well, and it goes back to how they're interpreting things that are scary. Perhaps I have a friend who told me that she had an evil spirit and her, and to try and enter her home through her front door. And this was 20 years before I met her. And I said, well, tell me about it. And So she described it. And so I can do instant replay because time doesn't exist in the spirit world. So I went back and did an instant replay and watched it. And I said, well, that wasn't an evil spirit. I said, it was just that that, your front door was so dense that it was kind of like he had a pair of pantyhose on his face, on his head. And it distorted his face as it was coming through that dense door. And come to find out it was a spirit who was looking for his daughter. He was from the Civil War. He he was looking for his daughter. He had died in battle, and he was looking for his little girl who had reincarnated as my friend's daughter. And we got their name, we got where they lived, we got all this information that we would we were able to corroborate with historic documents. And so I believe all spirits are pure love. That's been my experience over all these decades of doing this work. And I and I truly believe that all spirits are pure love. When we see something that's scary, of course, we're all hardwired for fear, so we're gonna go to fear first when it's something we don't understand or or something that we're seeing for the first time, but it's not something that's evil or bad because I believe all spirits are pure love.
2: Yeah, when you mentioned he was looking for his daughter, it reminded me of an experience I had that was kind of amusing. Um, I, I had a soul come to me one evening and Give me a message, uh, and ask me to deliver it to his brother, who was a friend of mine. And I didn't know my friend had a deceased brother. And I asked this—I asked this soul, um, why are you coming to me? Why don't you just go to your brother? And he said, "Oh, he won't receive this from me." I thought, oh, okay. So it uh, was a few days later, I think. I'm, I'm visiting with this man, my friend, and I asked him. I said, "Do you have any siblings?" Because I was pretty intimate about. Timid about wanting to share this, right? And he goes, "Yeah," and he rattled, starts rattling off his siblings. One of which was his uh, brother, who I think died of pancreatitis. And uh, and I said, "You have a deceased brother?" And he said, "Yeah." And uh, as he's talking and telling me about his deceased brother, I again I, I couch this in really careful words. I said, "You know, I had a I had a really interesting experience about your brother that I, I wanted to share something with you, without telling him what had happened." And I shared this message and my friend looked at me and he goes, that's my brother. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, why didn't he come to you? And my friend said, oh, I wouldn't have received that from him. <laughs> so sometimes they know, I guess. they Sometimes they enlist our help because they have the wisdom to know how to best deliver the message.
1: Well, not only that, but I think sometimes we get messages from strangers and others more so than people that are really close to us. Certainly you had many situations in your emergency department where some family member would say, I've been wanting dad to come in because he was having this pain. I said, you're having an appendicitis attack and kept saying, no, 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 it's not a problem. And then finally I convinced him to come in and you take one look at him. You're like, yeah, you're having an appendicitis attack, right? They just want somebody who's outside of their Frame of reference, because I think we all have our own ideas about people. And you think, well, Jeff's an ER doctor, he's not going to be able to talk to dead people, but that doesn't make any sense. So it, so it's, without, it's outside of how they perceive you and how they've come to know you over their relationship with you. I think that's more common than
2: not. And it's important to recognize that Every circumstance and situation is different, and your, your response to it has to be accordingly. I, I had a, an occasion where a person was flown in from out of state after a car accident that took the life of one of their family members, and their injuries were relatively minor, but they were, here in my, they were there in my emergency department with some of their other family members. It was a situation not too dissimilar from the experience I had with Jeff Olson, and the deceased person was there with them in the room. And I was expressly told, do not tell them I'm here. And why was that circumstance so dramatically different than one very similar to it where I was supposed to communicate? I don't know, but I've learned that you need to honor the messages that come in the direction you get, because there's some reason for it, even if you don't understand it.
1: Exactly. And we're the messengers. We're not here to edit anything or... Or decide who needs to hear what. We just—that's my belief. I, I'm the messenger. I'm like the roving reporter. So are you. Okay. Here's what. Here's the information I'm getting. I'm just sharing it. And I think it's important to remember too, that that when we share that, it may not make sense to the person with whom we're sharing at that moment. They may say, "Oh yeah, that doesn't resonate at all." But then later, I have that all the time where a client will email me after the fact and say, "You know." That didn't make sense to me at the time, but I did some checking and turns out that does make sense and here's how. So yeah. I, I suggest that they be open to the interpretation. Think about it. It may come to them later when they least expect it, or something may happen that resonates with it down the road that just hasn't happened yet. And so I think that that ends up being helpful. To the people with whom we're sharing those messages from spirit. As we close, is there a thought or two that you can share with all of our listeners and everybody that's watching this online with how they can use this information that you're able to access knowing that life really does go on past bodily death and how can that help them live a a more fulfilling, more joyful life here when they're in human, their human existence.
2: I had an experience one day when I walked into a hospital room and there was a man reclining on the gurney. He was probably, he looked like he was about 50, but he was probably 10 years younger. He had soiled, tattered clothing. Um, He had holes in his shoes and his socks. He had long, unkept hair and a scraggly beard, and he struggled with substance abuse. He was homeless, and he'd been out walking around in the snow, and his feet were in rough shape. Um, We didn't even really talk much. We we both knew what needed to be done. I I filled a wash basin with warm water and squirted some soap in it and grabbed a wash rag and sat down at the foot of the gurney. I took off his shoes, and I removed the last threads of his worn-out socks. And I proceeded to wash his feet. And I had the most profound experience. Something miraculous happened. It was as if everything that was temporal or physical uh, or mortal was drawn aside. And I saw his soul. I saw his divine nature. And I understood I was in the presence of the divine. Literally. I'm not exaggerating. and. It was so impressive to me because this man was the antithesis of everything the world had taught me was success. And yet I saw the infinite nature uh, of his soul. And I understood that he was there teaching me. He was ministering to me. I thought I'd gone into the room to help him, but he was there ministering to me. Because he wasn't just teaching me who he was, he was teaching me who I was. And I understood that that's the nature of every soul. Whether we're in church or in the gutter, we're always sitting next to God because that's who we are and that's who they are. And I've looked at every soul differently since that day. Um, It's so important for us to start to recognize our own infinite divine nature and honor that uh, because it affects not just how we treat ourselves, but how we treat others.
1: Wow. Well, I'll never look at the story or hear the story of the last supper where Jesus washed the apostles feet the same after hearing that story. My goodness, that brings me to tears and gave me goosebumps when you were telling that story. So thank you for sharing
2: that with us. Well, you remember the Savior said on one occasion, when you've done it unto one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. And that's much more literal than we often realize. Good point.
1: Well, and you've had the opportunity to do that a lot in your lifetime to help those that are that are the least of these, I would imagine level one promise center. You're, you're probably had a fairly good sized indigent population that you would see from time to time that would come in that you would treat.
2: Yeah. And you know what? I love taking care of the indigent people as a general rule, because they were so grateful for the care they were receiving. Um, they they're, they're good people. And uh, we just, Don't do very good sometimes when we look at people and we tend to judge and label them. Uh, We tend to think that uh, wealth is good, health is good, uh, all these things that we use in the world for uh, measures of success. And often they don't have any relation whatsoever, or they have a negative association sometimes with the eternal part of us that's more important.
1: Exactly. Well, how can people find out more about you?
2: Well, my website is jeffodriscoll.com, but if you don't want to spell my last name, just go to helpingsoulsheal.com. Same website, helpingsoulsheal.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. People can find me easily there. And uh, there's a lot more information on my website. You can get my books on the website domestically. Uh, you can get novel and, and uh, not yet internationally through Amazon. And, uh, I'm just pleased to be with you and happy to share.
1: Well, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us this week and everybody. I'll be back next week with a regular show. Just sending you lots of love Mwah! from sweet home, Alabama and Utah too, and I'll see you next week. Bye everybody.
0: Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com.
2: This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice please contact a licensed professional.
1: The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it. Assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.